Welcome to the Movement is Life Health Disparities Podcast. My name is Bill Finnerfrock, and I will be your uh, moderator for today's discussion. We're going to be talking about small town uh, orthopedists and, and specialty care in small town America. We are, are familiar with shortages and access issues, uh, often as they relate to primary care, family physicians, general internal medicine, pediatrics, things of that nature. But uh, very often, it's very challenging to get specialty care, and in particular, uh, surgical specialties into uh, smaller communities. And we are honored to have with us today uh, two individuals who are very familiar with this topic. We have uh, Dr. Uh, Tammy Huff, uh, who is an orthopedic surgeon in, from Columbus, Georgia, and Dr. Olashawan uh, Akimbo, who is an orthopedic surgeon uh, from Hayes, Kansas. And we're gonna be talking to them about some of these issues uh, and we're also going to be tying in uh, health disparities and how this affects uh, health disparities. As I said, I'm Bill Finnerfrock, and I'm a member of the executive uh, committee for Movement is Life, and I'm also the uh, co-founder and executive director of the National Association of Rural Health Clinics, and I'm honored uh, to uh, be a part of this project uh, and our efforts to eliminate health disparities, particularly as they relate to musculoskeletal health. Uh, I want to just make a note that all the views and opinions expressed uh, during today's conversation are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the respective organizations or of Movement is Life. Uh, we're recording this in early February. Uh, and so while there is a lot of good news uh, coming out recently about COVID, COVID vaccine and the availability of vaccines, uh, it's clear that we have a very long way to go before we see the end of the uh, pandemic. Um, the number of deaths uh, appear to be stabilizing a little bit, and we've seen a dramatic drop in the number of new uh, COVID cases since around uh, January uh, 10th. Um, some states like Alabama and Georgia have recorded the highest daily death rates since the uh, pandemic began in, in recent days. Uh, and in rural areas, uh, we're seeing some uh, impact there significant, uh, particularly due to some of the disparities that we're aware of that occur in rural communities. So with all that uh, as a backdrop, I want to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Akimbo and Dr. Huff uh, to our program today uh, and talk first about uh, some of the difficulties of trying to work uh, in a COVID environment and some of the unique challenges that uh, that, that presents to you in terms of, of your patients, not only in terms of the, um, the actual surgical procedures, but preoperatively and postoperatively, uh, and just getting patients in uh, to see the doctor. We know that in the early spring, in the early days of the pandemic, uh, we saw cancellation of a lot of uh, surgical procedures. We saw a, a reluctance on the part of patients to even come in to, uh, to see their doctor. Was, uh, was that your experience uh, throughout this pandemic? We'll start off with uh, Dr. Huff. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm so happy to be here. I've, I've had the distinct pleasure of serving in rural areas, both in Louisiana, Georgia, and Kansas as well. And especially with COVID, these communities are unique. Each one's unique. But since COVID started, we're seeing some challenges just on the most basic levels of bringing patients into the hospital, 
because they can't have that family support. So even outside of COVID, most patients like to come to the doctor with someone else. It's always good to have someone there as a second set of ears to understand what's going on and kind of be there to ask questions, to follow up and things. That's especially important in surgical subspecialties where we're planning for cases. There are questions and things we need to know. And with COVID, people can't bring their family members oftentimes into the hospital. It's even a bigger issue if it's an emergency situation and we can't have that family member there or after the surgery, the family member can't be there. I think that's one of the under, understated complications we're seeing with COVID is just not having that family member there, not to mention um, testing. I know Dr. Akimbo will probably get into this too. Every facility is different, but many facilities such as my own, we have to have testing done for all elective cases. And whenever the numbers fluctuate, we cancel those elective cases which are positive for COVID. Dr. Akimbo, you're in Hayes, Kansas, and uh, you've been there for a few years. Uh, can you tell us about what you saw in, in Hayes with regard to your patients? Uh, they're coming in to uh, see you with regard to uh, your, your surgical issues, orthopedic issues preoperatively, interoperatively, and then postoperatively? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm going to piggyback on what uh, Dr. Hoffert said. So it certainly is a different environment now, so to speak, in terms of providing care in rural America. Before I got to Hayes, I actually worked in other rural um, areas, including South Georgia, as well as in Nevada. Uh, but with COVID, it kind of changed things uh, remarkably for us. Um, initially, we had to cancel um, clinic to sort of get our bearings in terms of what our policy was going to be. And uh, we had to, can had to cancel elective cases too. Uh, once we figured that out, we were able to bring patients back to uh, the office for consultations and also started ha uh, offering telehealth. Before COVID, we didn't actually do that here in Hayes, but since COVID, it's become um, part of what we uh, do. Um, initially, and actually we still do that now, um, everybody gets screened. Every patient coming into the office gets screened, um, screening questions, temperature check. We didn't do that before uh, COVID. Uh, the physicians, nurses, um, other workers at the hospital or the specialty clinics have to do the same thing too. Uh, certainly that wasn't done before um, COVID. Uh, the masking that's done uh, nationwide is also a big thing now. And um, a refusal to wear a mask essentially is a refusal um, to be seen. Um, as it regards how things have changed with pre-op um, evaluations, initially uh, before COVID, everything was relatively seamless. You could see a patient a few days before surgery, get all of your, all of your blood work taken care of, get the, uh, your type and screen done for the joint replacement cases before surgery with social distancing now and still needing to have every patient tested before surgery, we tend to have that done um, two to three days before the actual surgical day. But then the patients have to stay at home and uh, leave the house for the two to three days before surgery, which prevents them from being able to get some tests done specifically for joint replacements with a type and screen um, tests that have to be done before surgery. Um, what that ultimately results to or results in is we have some patients that might show up late on the day of surgery. 
those patients ultimately uh, might be canceled or have their surgical stat delayed. Uh, those that show up on time, if they have the type of cross done and it shows that they have antibodies to blood, it's the same process. They either get delayed to a later time of the day or uh, they get rescheduled to um, another day. Those things were not issues before um, COVID. Um, also with COVID, our emergency care has been affected. Um, when I say emergency care, I mean uh, things that require uh, implants being brought in for um, particular reasons. For an, an example would be uh, hip infections or knee infections. Um, in the past, when we had those issues, we could get rather quick access to uh, implants. We've been shipped over to our hospital uh, as needed. Uh, with problems with um, getting those implants transported over courier services, we've had delays. We've had some uh, implants or instruments lost along the way, which by itself has a certain delay to when you can actually do this uh, emergency cases, at least from an orthopedic perspective. Um, and that's another, that's another thing that wasn't really there before COVID. Um, our reps have stepped in, so to speak, and um, before COVID, didn't really have reps driving three to four hours to meet another rep halfway between two different states to pick up an instrument. Um, I'm sure it probably happened, but not with the kind of frequency um, it, ha it started happening after uh, COVID hit, um, which is another thing. Um, and in terms of post-op care, um, that wasn't really impacted as much by um, COVID other than um, there's a more concerted effort now to have patients actually go home after surgery. That certainly was a trend uh, before COVID hit, but that's become more important now because there's only so many patients the nursing homes can um, have. And the other thing is um, those patients have to have a negative COVID test before going to nursing homes. So if you have a hip fracture, a patient come in and uh, hip fractures typically, at least in my hands, will go to some sort of a swing bed or rehab facility. Uh, the discharge is not as seamless anymore because they need a negative test before they can go. And typically we get a negative test just right before we know they're good to go. And unfortunately, it's not a rapid test because there's only um, there's a short supply of those rapid tests and you typically hold them for true uh, emergencies. Mm. So um, invariably, and albeit reluctantly, increasing the length of stay for certain patients. Um, as regards visitations after um, elective surgery, we've come all the way down to just uh, one family member in a 24-hour period. In the past, we didn't really have, in the past pre-COVID, we didn't have a limit. At some point during uh, COVID, we had no visitors. Uh, now we have one visitor on the 24-hour period. Wow. And you can sub each other out. Dad can come in the morning and then leave so mom can come in the afternoon. If dad shows up in the morning, it's dad the entire 24 hours. Wow. Wow. That's got to be hard, especially for your patients that are coming from uh, long distance um, you know, because I, I would imagine your, your coverage area for both uh, you, Dr. Huff, in Columbus and you, Dr. Akimbo, in Hayes, you're seeing patients from a fairly long distance, relatively long distance from, from where you're physically located. 
Um, Dr. Huff, what's your service? What would you estimate is your service area in terms of where people, how far people are coming uh, from to come to you for uh, for surgery? So while currently um, I'm, pra- I'm not practicing in Columbus, but in Kansas and some of the other places that I've practiced at, on average, people are traveling anywhere from 30, 45 miles, if not longer. Uh, again, many of these areas and many areas throughout the U.S. have a very poor transportation infrastructure to right. start with. Right. So there's just no public transportation. If so, it's very limited. Um, yes, there are Medicaid and Medicare vans, but many times they can be on that for a very long time. Um, right. And just as Dr. Akimbo kind of alluded to, getting people back into the hospital to do pre-op testing and perioperative testing is very, very challenging. And um, for us, just circling back to one point in particular he made about the rapid tests. And preoperatively, we're trying to get people tested. Uh, There is definitely a shortage of rapid tests and people have transportation issues, so they can't come back we are having to cancel more people because we can't get that test back in time. And we end up canceling the day of surgery, the day before surgery. They have, many people have very limited resources to start with. And it's a big deal to ask a family member or friends to take off time for surgery and then have to reschedule it one to two weeks later. So definitely transportation is a huge issue, not only for the patient, but also for the family members that are having to bring them back. Well, and and you, the you, uh, Dr. Huff and Dr. Akimbo, and uh, a colleague of of ours from Movement is Life, Dr. Uh, Mary O'Connor, uh, recently authored an article that was published uh, in the uh, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons Journal, um, where you highlighted some of the unique challenges uh, facing rural orthopedists, and and this issue of distance, I think, is is one. Uh, that that obviously existed prior to COVID, as you were suggesting, and and is now even you know is exacerbated as a consequence. Um, you mentioned uh, vans that that might be available. Uh, is that something that that the hospitals are doing? Is it is there is there funding for that um, from outside sources? Um, how how are they able to sustain those programs? Do you know? I can speak for us. It's more through Medicaid, if I'm not mistaken. Um, The resources are very, very limited. And it also depends on the funding um, from the state as well. But it's very, very limited. Okay. Dr. Akimbo, um, in your community, as Dr. Uh, Huff alluded to, she said, you know, 35, 40, 50 mile radius. Has that uh, been your experience uh, there in your practice in terms of how far people are coming from and, and seeing similar experiences in terms of the ability of individuals uh, to get to uh, to the hospital, to the clinic uh, for for pre-operative, post-operative or interoperative, uh, those, those same kind of transportation challenges? Yeah, so our, our hospital um, is relatively speaking the tertiary center for Northwest Kansas. So our radius is, is like a 200 mile radius for our patients to come in. Wow. But the transportation thing is definitely an issue. We're trying to get our patients in. Um, a lot of times though, with patients that are coming to see us for uh, surgical interventions, they usually have family members bring them over. Um, in town, within the city, um, the 
access vans as provided by the insurance companies definitely fill uh, that void. But for folks coming from much um, uh, longer distances away, they usually rely on family, friends, if they cannot drive themselves over. Uh, what we also do for those patients is if they're coming from that kind of distance, um, we typically will have them come in the day before surgery. And there's a voucher everybody can use uh, that they use to get a discounted stay at uh, hotels around uh, also has them, we have them stay in town the night before um, to kind of help make things somewhat easier for them knowing how far they have to drive to get back to us. So in terms of um, the follow-up aspect, we, we've seen a lot of uh, talk and, and we saw a lot of policies changed with regard to telehealth. Um, and are you, do you find yourselves uh, utilizing telehealth now more so than you did before, particularly for follow-up uh, with patients when, you know, they've gone home? Uh, in your case, Dr. Akimbo, that could be, you know, a couple hundred miles that you're able to do uh, telehealth, or is that something that has not yet really taken hold in your area? And same thing for you, Dr. Huff. So I, um, I can start on that. Um, so when COVID came into town, we had to sort of uh, shore up our telehealth resources to try to address that. Uh, we'll say though that our community is not exactly technologically uh, savvy. So it makes it somewhat difficult for our older patients to um, use telehealth, with use Zoom. Uh, it makes it a little difficult and challenging for them to do. And some of them actually prefer just coming in. Um, there's also a partnership with the primary care providers in the local vicinity of those patients that um, apart from the elective joint replacement cases where we typically prefer to see those ones afterwards, the fracture cares, the folks that are much older and don't want to do a telehealth or don't want to come in, the primary care providers typically will step in and sort of provide that um, post-op care. Certainly with the first visit in a week, the primary care providers typically will provide that post-op care. If there are any issues, they will have them see us. And um, so our telehealth numbers certainly were a lot higher, uh, say six months ago than they are now. We'll say in this year, 2021, I haven't done a single telehealth visit. Wow. Um, last year, it was multiple telehealth visits um, a day. I think that's a combination of, um, I was figuring out a way to work with the primary care physicians to kind of provide this um, service for post-op care in the local um, vicinity of the patients. Uh, but I think it also has to do with um, the decreased numbers of COVID cases in our area to making people feel perhaps more comfortable. And um, the vaccination certainly is helping in that regard to make people feel more comfortable with coming back out for um, the post-op care. And speaking of vaccines, can I assume that you both have uh, had the opportunity to be vaccinated? Yes. Yeah. Um, Dr. Huff, did you uh, want to add anything in terms particularly as it relates to to telehealth, the acceptance of telehealth, the availability, those things? Well, uh, I would love to say that we were able to do um, telehealth, but actually we did not participate in telehealth at all prior to this and have not participated in it during. Mm. And it has been a significant challenge. 
Um, again, many hospitals in um, smaller areas are have significant funding constraints. And actuality, some of them are just now going into EMRs. Some still use paper charts, so electronic medical records. With that in mind, the technology bar is not only a bar that needs to be jumped or a hurdle that needs to be crossed by patients, it's a hurdle that needs to be crossed by the actual healthcare system. So in my particular case, we did not see anyone via traditional or common telehealth models. Uh, We actually did a lot of calls, a, a lot of calls. And actually, one of the things that was a side effect of that is we had several people that Um, had fractures and developed COVID, and we saw significant delays in presentation for Mm -hmm. fractures. I will also say some complications postoperatively because they couldn't get the physical therapy they needed um, because of COVID. And that was both the issue of the patient um, getting COVID-19 and also people who had immunocompromised family members, and they were afraid to go out or afraid to have home health come in. Um, That's one of the blessings and the curses, the particular area I work in. Well, up until the last three to four months, we did not have as big of an outbreak as the rest of the area around us. So we continued elective cases. Unfortunately, those outbreaks started coming on and those people were afraid and for good reason. And their outcomes were drastically affected by the fact that we couldn't get to them postoperatively or they couldn't get into us. Your area, demographically, where you are, Dr. Huff, and demographically, where you are, Dr. Akinbo, um, are you seeing the, the kind of disparities that we're seeing nationwide in terms of uh, the impact of COVID on the patients in your community and that it's having uh, a far greater uh, impact uh, within uh, the minority community, particularly African American and Hispanic, uh, much higher uh, case data reporting. Um, those types of things are are is that typical of what you're seeing uh, in either Georgia or you know Kansas? I'm I'm not sure whether how diverse um, the population is in Kansas, um, you know, relative to uh, to Georgia. Um, but you know, certainly, you know, Dr. Huff, what are you seeing and and Dr. Akimbo, you know, what are you seeing in, in your community? Um, I'm in a fairly diverse area. Um, definitely the socioeconomic side of things. Um, we're seeing a large number of people that are in service industries where they can't take that time off. Um, actually, one that really struck me was one of my patients who had a tumor that we needed to take out. It was a benign tumor. Had to be rescheduled for some COVID reasons. We actually had staffing issues and had to keep rescheduling her. And the process of this whole thing, she lost her job. Mm. And coming up on the holiday, she actually couldn't. We had to find assistance for her to have food to eat for Thanksgiving until she could heal up and go back to work. So anecdotally, while um, the area is a little bit more diverse than some other areas in uh, the country, we definitely are seeing black and brown people hurting as well as um, white people hurting as well. It's definitely a socioeconomic issue where if you are someone that's working in service industry, we're seeing a lot with people that are in grocery stores and um, 
I actually have some public safety um, people as well. It's just they can't stop working. And then if they stop, they lose the job and then lose the health insurance. And that becomes a whole nother issue. So we're not as diverse as Georgia is. And uh, I don't think the data here was actually broken down by uh, race. Uh, we'll just piggyback on what you said and say, I agree with the fact that at least in Kansas, it seems like um, a lot more people that had COVID uh, were involved in the service industry uh, and healthcare workers also. Um, in essence, people that didn't have the, or don't have the opportunity to uh, work from home and have to uh, be exposed by nature of their jobs. Um, but as regards diversity, can't really speak to that because we don't really keep that data. Um, and Hayes is not particularly uh, diverse. That's what I was, uh, I was pretty sure that that might be the case. And, and to the point though that, that you made, uh, Dr. Huff, I mean, there is uh, clearly a socioeconomic component to that. And, and in some areas, there's a high correlation between the socioeconomic and and racial and ethnic uh, disparities. Uh, so, but if you get to rural areas, and I think this has been one of the things that's been interesting for Movement is Life, that as we have gone into some rural communities, we see many of the same uh, disparities and, and access issues there that you see in uh, urban communities uh, with communities of color, the difference being that in these rural communities, it's it's a disproportionately or very high Caucasian uh, population, uh, but they have similar socioeconomic characteristics that, that seem to correlate to access to care. Absolutely, and actually you brought up a great point. So with Movement is Life class, we talk about the vicious cycle of having heart disease, having type two diabetes, um, having all of these issues that along with obesity that stop you from moving and cause more and more problems. Well, that's just basically created the perfect storm for these areas. The, the number of patients that have medical comorbidities, undiagnosed, poorly treated type two diabetes, undiagnosed, poorly managed hypertension, peripheral vascular disease, congestive heart failure, all these comorbidities that are exacerbated by the fact there's a very limited access to specialty care, um, even endocrinologists and things like that to help control those more brittle diabetics. We see it. And when you pair that along with, so you have a, a population that isn't necessarily the healthiest, that has all these medical comorbidities, then they're working jobs where they're facing the community every day. And then on top of that, now you bring COVID on, on top of them. It's a mess. I mean, right. we have had serious, while our outbreaks took longer for it to happen, now they're happening. It's a major issue. And many of the facilities, so once the patients um, unfortunately have COVID and that comes into the hospital, that raises an entirely different issue of when staff start getting COVID. Right. And that is a huge issue for a smaller hospital. Three staff to shut down a clinic. Yeah, the um, I, I, I want to kind of get into some of this workforce um, issue and that you both have alluded to it. So Dr. Akimbo, mm -hmm. you're now, you now find yourself in uh, Hayes, Kansas. 
Can you tell our audience a little bit about your journey? Uh, what got you to Hayes, Kansas? And is there anything there that's instructive on how to get um, orthopedic surgeons or other specialties to some of the smaller communities uh, where we are having shortages of uh, physicians, not only orthopedic surgeons, but uh, other type of specialty physicians as well? When I actually finished fellowship, I practiced in New Haven. Uh, and I was in New Haven for about two and a half years. New Haven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. New Haven, Connecticut. After living in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, I did locums for about a year. And uh, I just wanted to see the country. And I chose the places I went to based on places I knew I was never going to live or practice in. Um, so I chose a tiny town in Nevada, Ely, Nevada. I'm in Way Cross, Georgia. I think I was in Salina, Kansas also, and then I did Hayes too. And um, and I liked it. I liked Hayes, yeah, I liked the uh, the people, I liked the staff, I liked the hospital, I liked administration. I did it for almost a year before formally joining the staff. Um, in terms of what's instructive there, I would say it was the relationship between uh, the staff um, and the physicians that made it, they made it a facility I wanted to be at. Um, for me, um, the practice I end up in, I ended up in, um, is going to affect my happiness, and uh, that to be something that kind of gelled with, like the way I kind of want to live my life, a little bit stress free. And hey, certainly is stress free. Everything is within a ten mile um, or ten minute distance, and have the basic necessities that you need. Uh, but yeah, what kind of did it for me was the relationship between admin and other physician workforce. And it's not unusual in certain places to have that relationship not be seamless. Uh, but here we could run into our CEO in the lounge almost every day, right. or run into members of our admin staff and just kind of lay out what our issues are. And um, it definitely gets heard. And uh, a good number of times it gets acted upon. Um, and that made it an easy transition from um, a big city, big hospital to small town, much smaller hospital. But then the, the flip side, and I hear this, and, and Dr. Huff, I'd like to get your perspective, but one of the things that I also hear from, from uh, healthcare providers in your type of, in these smaller uh, environments is how much healthcare uh, your your or advice you you get asked for standing in the line at the grocery store, you know that that you know for the same reasons that you're seeing the CEO, your community, your patients are seeing you out in the community while you're maybe having a cup of coffee in the morning or you're in the grocery store, uh, and and some don't particularly like that. They they prefer the anonymity that can come with practicing in a larger. Uh, community where they can completely uh, divest themselves from that practice situation. Yeah, I I definitely prefer the anonymity initially, uh, coming from a bigger city, but uh, you can you can't have that here in Hayes. Right. I've done a post op check in the grocery store. The patient that will come for his post op visit, and I examined his knee at the grocery store while I was pushing his, uh, <laughs> his grocery cart. So. Yep. You kind of get used to it, and uh, it it hasn't. I haven't had an unpleasant encounter so far, um, so it makes it seem 
not that bad compared to what impression I might have had of it uh, before. I think almost every day that I go to the grocery store, I probably will run into a patient or someone I know. Right, right. So, Dr. Huff, uh, what got you to uh, to where you are in kind of your your pathway? And well, and do you have similar experiences to what Dr. Akimbo was discussing? Well, I love small towns, um, mostly because of the people. The patients are amazing. Um, like Dr. Akimbo, I've had a couple of interesting checkups in the YMCA, checking out knees, um, trying to work out um, <laughs> along the street corners and that, things like that. Um, I enjoy it because there is a need and the people are just amazing. You just meet some of the neatest, most amazing patients. And honestly, I love food. And my patients <laughs> typically, no matter um, where I am, um, whether I'm practicing down at home in Louisiana and getting the best bread pudding, white chocolate, blueberry um, bread puddings and all kinds of fried turkey and jerky and everything else um, down in Georgia and up in Junction City, Kansas. I have had some of the most amazing patients ever um, in those areas because they know that you don't have to be there. Um, and they're just happy to have you. They're happy to have someone that's interested in them that's interested in their town that they can run into at the grocery store mm -hmm. or the YMCA or at your church and things like that. It's just, it's a great group of people. So you would, uh, you would encourage your colleagues to, uh, to follow your path and, and take a look at uh, practicing in smaller towns. Yes. I think it's really key to broaden your horizons. So like Dr. Kimbo, I actually am currently doing locum tenum. So, so prior to this, I worked full-time in Wake Cross, Georgia, um, in practice there for several years, and then into Columbus, Georgia, my hometown, and currently I'm traveling. But you get an opportunity to see other cultures. It's so easy to make these assumptions. I am born and raised in the South, um, lived in every state and every corner of the South, and there are assumptions that people make of the Southeast. Um, there are assumptions that people make of the Midwest, of up north, and any opportunity you have to break out of that mold, you'll be surprised. There are some amazing people. Um, I know Dr. Akimbo wouldn't have thought they would have fallen in love with Hayes, Kansas, but there are some amazing people in this country of ours. And as physicians, we, we need to sometimes put our assumptions to the side and see what's out there and broaden our horizons. Yeah, I, I had, you know, a similar experience. I, I uh, when we were talking earlier, I was mentioning uh, my my background and I worked for about six years for a senator from Iowa. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. And uh, before I went to work for him, I had never been further west than Pittsburgh. And and so I had this image of what Iowa must be like. And, you know, the first time I went there, and, and certainly some things proved true, it was obviously a lot of corn, a lot of soybeans, you know, a lot of, uh, of uh, some of the smells were interesting because of hog confinements and a slaughterhouse. But much like you were talking about, the people there were just so genuine and so friendly and accepting. And, and I, you know, the word you used was appreciative. And when I talk to uh, rural providers, you know, whether it's docs or PAs or NPs or nurses, you know, whoever it is, 
uh, that's a common theme that you hear is that one of the things that, that they enjoy is that they have patients who appreciate what you're doing uh, for them uh, in terms of trying to help them. You know, Dr. Akimba, I, I found it interesting when you were relating your locums experience, and I and I, I think I heard you say you chose places that you didn't think you'd want to practice in. Yep. Uh, and yet you ended up uh, in Hayes, and you've stayed there. And yeah. so, like Dr. Huff, maybe you you went and it was like, hey, this wasn't at all what I expected, and you you found some place that you really liked. One of the things that we've continued to hear is uh, supply. You guys have alluded to shortages of the the quick COVID tests. Um, are there are there other things like PPE? Are are you still experiencing shortages of of PPE or other equipment and other supplies that are impeding your ability to provide the care your patients need? Or have we kind of turned the corner and uh, and and we we're kind of at a stasis in terms of supply and demand as far as uh, supplies are concerned? So my hospital is relatively bigger than the typical rural um, hospital. And just how, how big is your hospital? How many beds? Uh, so I think it's almost 200 beds. Almost 200? Okay. Um, initially, we had a shortage of PPEs. We had to ration things out. But even then, it wasn't as bad as it was uh, in the Northeast. Um, I think at this point, we've reached a stasis. We don't really have the crisis or crisis level events going on anymore. Certainly, if another surge were to happen, we might be back where we were a few months ago. But I think um, at this point, we're doing okay as regards the PPEs. Certainly, the rapid test is still a, an issue uh, with us here. Uh, we don't have enough to do a rapid test on every patient, because if we did, we'll probably do that and have patients just show up the day of surgery, as opposed to uh, having it done having their test done two to three days before surgery and not being able to provide them some compensation for the lost productivity that some of them will have to endure for the two to three days. They have to uh, quarantine and just sit at home uh, pending the date of their surgery. So uh, my most recent hospital is considerably smaller, only 50 beds. And again, during the height of the pandemic in the fall, when it spiked again, we definitely had some shortages. The large, well, the larger problem for us was that we were such a small hospital. We don't have that leverage that some of the larger places have to find other um, vendors. If you're short on a certain type of surgical glove that you want, there's only one place that we have that contract with that we can't necessarily leverage our sides to get resources from other places. So that was something that we ran into, um, but we were never anywhere to the point that they were of the shortage they were seeing in the Northeast. I wanted to uh, go back a little bit on some of the workforce issues. You know, we talked about, you know, from a physician perspective, but I think, uh, I'm not sure, I think it was Dr. Akimbo, you alluded to, uh, or one of you about, you had to cancel surgeries, not because the patient wasn't there or the surgeon, but you, you didn't have the other staff uh, that would be necessary. And we tend to often, when we talk about these things, think about it in the context of physician uh, or even PA or NP availability, uh, but we, we do it to the, we ignore 
you know, the nursing staff availability, the other uh, staff availability, whether it's you know, maybe a medical assistant or a surgical technologist or, you know, whoever is helping you do your work. How are we doing in terms of, of the, the meeting the needs or the, the demand for those personnel? Uh, and are, do we need to focus from a, a public policy perspective not just on on provider the the the, the doc or PA and P uh, workforce, but but the other uh, types of health professionals as well. What what are you seeing in those areas? So we didn't really have that issue because we're again a bigger facility um, than most of the rural care facilities. Certainly, no of hospitals where uh, a few nurses go down and that's it for the OR. Uh, no one heard of practices practices where uh, an MA or a couple of MAs go out with COVID and that's the orthopedic clinic gone for, for the week. Uh, we're able to weather that because we have a bigger uh, workforce. We have more staff members than uh, most of the rural facilities, rural hospitals um, in Kansas. So it wasn't as much an issue uh, for us. Where it became an issue was having to sub people in, like say in the OR, uh, the typical person that does knee replacements and helps out in knee replacements is help with COVID. You have to bring somebody else to fill in that spot. Well, the somebody else you bring in might have uh, no experience with doing the case you're having them sub in to do. Uh, so that definitely happened. That was definitely an issue. And same thing applies, uh, will apply in the office. Um, like the MA you typically work with has COVID. And so you have some other elves uh, take a position and cover for her. And the person might have never worked with you before. That's the case that results in loss of, uh, or slows down your efficiency. And so we had those problems. My most recent hospital definitely was a smaller type of a hospital where we solve all of those problems. Um, in, a, in a small hospital, there may only be two or three people staffing your entire clinic or one or two surgical assistants that or surgical technologists that are comfortable doing a total knee or a total hip or um, any of those specialty cases. So just like Dr. Akimbo said, if one of those people goes down, it is it shuts everything down. So that was already a problem that we were seeing. Um, that COVID has drastically exacerbated that. Um, we've had instances where an entire staff got COVID and shut down the orthopedic clinic for two weeks. Um, and that's an issue for patients, that's an issue for us um, being able to even answer the telephone. So if you're working in a facility that's smaller and you already have limited resources, having five people out, employees out for COVID could definitely shut your hospital. It, it could shut whole departments of your hospital yep. down. It can yep. shut the OR down. Also too, on that same vein, in a lot of these smaller facilities, um, contract workers, when it comes to surgeons, but also um, ancillary staff, such as uh, respiratory anesthetists, are really important parts of the team. However, those are contractors coming in. So with COVID and the shortages of having people with ICU experience or ventilator experience, we have had significant problems 
being able to secure anesthesia groups to cover just basic surgical cases. So I, I believe that COVID has just exacerbated the strains that are already present on these rural systems. And when you talk about policies or how we can make things better, implementing training programs, implementing um, resources so you can increase the number of people with that, those skills that are in the community. Of course, the communities need those jobs, but we also need people with that skill set. So having facility, having places where they can train would be an amazing asset because, again, I've worked in two hospitals recently and it was staffing issues. We've had the beds to take care of more people, but we either didn't have the nurses or we couldn't do the cases because we didn't have the anesthesia staff or we didn't have the scrub techs to do it. So um, it, it's a little known fact that I have been empowered by, uh, by the authorities to designate you each for a day as king and queen of health policy. So uh, I'm, I'm using my power to grant to you the opportunity to fix two things in, uh, in our healthcare delivery system. And uh, you now get the opportunity to, to tell, tell us what are the two things that you would fix as the queen of healthcare or the king of healthcare? So uh, ladies first, Dr. Huff, as the queen of healthcare, uh, what will you wave your wand and uh, decree to uh, get fixed? If I could change anything, I would increase the number of healthcare providers that are involved in policy. To me, the biggest challenges that we're seeing in how we address the pandemic or just how we relate to patients is because many people that have that power that have that could change things do not have any clinical experience. So find empowering, whether it's physicians, whether it's other practitioners such as nurse practitioners or physician assistants to have the business background and have the administrative background to offer solutions from the ground up. So um, in design theory um, in business, we're gonna jump. I mean, it's still ideas from them. <laughs> My perfect world as a, as a queen. In those other industries, many times your best ideas come from people that are doing the day-to-day -day activities. So when they go in, IDO goes in to solve the problem of how to fix a buggy, they don't go to the CEO of the, of the um of the grocery store on how to fix the problem. No, they go to the poor people that are pushing these buggies around the store and having all the problems. The same things with healthcare. If I had my magical wand, the first thing I would do is make sure that people in administrative positions and public policy spend a day in the hospital <laughs> to spend time to see and trace patients through that whole process because I think it will open up people's eyes and break down those silos because it's not because your patient's being non-compliant, it's because they can't get transportation. So I would say opening up that opportunity to see the world from every different state and kind of reimagine how we look at medicine in more of a holistic terms. Um, secondly, I would make sure that internet access and broadband access was much more prevalent in our rural areas because the idea of telehealth is spectacular, but if you have a dial-up connection, if you have 3G access, it's just a grainy 
bits of information. It's like watching a black and white television. So <laughs> if I could get those two things done, I would be a very happy queen of the universe. There you go. All right, Dr. Kimbo, you're up. You're the king now. And you get to, uh, to, to fix two things uh, during your tenure as king of healthcare. What would you fix? Or what would you do? I think the um, overarching thing is resources. Um, a lot of rural hospitals, rural facilities don't have the resources to say, hire more people so you can cross-train them to do, to do multiple, uh, multiple jobs, so to speak. You don't have the resources to recruit uh, more physicians to particular areas or more nurses or more PAs. You don't have the resources to build out your OR facility or like from an orthopedic perspective, have enough space to stock whatever your implant company might want to have stocked over there. Um, so I think the overarching thing is resources. And if I had like the magic wand to wave, it would be unlimited resources to rural facilities. Uh, and I think that will uh, change a lot of things. Um, and that and rural facilities or rural hospitals also end up providing a lot of jobs to those in the community. I think Hayes Medical Center is um, in terms of um, employees in the area, we probably have one of the highest numbers. And um, if we had more resources, perhaps we could even employ more people in the community and that could bridge the sort of socioeconomic gap with a little to earlier. Um, so with resources being overarching, my other thing would be um, telehealth, telemedicine. Uh, but I think you can really have that without having increase in resources. Um, I think it's one thing to say there's a uh, sort of like a technological blind that prevents my 80-year-old patient from being able to um, show up for a Zoom appointment. Well, she probably doesn't have a laptop. <laughs> so... If right. she had that, it might be a lot, a lot easier to like jump uh, that technological uh, divide. Um, and one of the ways that can be improved is uh, with resources. You can allocate more money to developing like broadband for um, folks that might need it, providing free broadband access for folks that might need it, and that might. Uh, improve the ability to provide telehealth or telemedicine services? I have to steal in one last thing. So my third wish, if there was, if it was possible, would also be investment in, I would guess, social services. So basically navigators. We talk about navigators all the time in joint replacement and things like that. But service navigators for rural areas, because all those things we're talking about with resources with transportation, making sure you have food services, making sure that um, coordination of care. People are trying their best, but everything's so spread out. Having a central area of resource, of having all these resources, but having somebody that understands those resources and can be a guide for people to go through would be an amazing addition. So I'll put away my wand. Now. Okay, yep, that's fine, that's fine. Um, you know, it was interesting, Dr. Huff, you, you you made reference to you know kind of getting the the management kind of down at that floor level so they could see what was going on and and years ago I had the opportunity to do some work uh, with uh, surgeon generals. Uh, most people see the public health service surgeon general, but they're actually each of the military branches has a surgeon general as well. And uh, this was the surgeon general of the Air Force, and 
He was a physician and he worked uh, two half days a week at a one of the Air Force clinics in the D.C. area. And he wanted to keep his skills up. But more importantly, he wanted to see what was actually occurring at that clinic level. So he would get reports from his subordinates. Oh, supplies are great. Communications great. Tell you know, all this stuff is great. But then once he was down on the floor, it's like, oh, I need this. Oh, well, we don't have that. Our supplies didn't come in. So he was able to see the disconnect between what he was getting in the way of reports in the aggregate versus what was the reality at that floor level. And I think that's what you're getting at is don't rely on the reports that you're getting, but actually get down to that that floor level and see for yourself what's happening and where the gaps are and where the problems are. Well, I, I just want to say uh, thank you. Uh, on behalf of Movement is Life, uh, Dr. Akimbo, uh, it's been uh, an honor and a pleasure uh, to, to get to meet you and talk with you uh, today and uh, for all of us to get benefit of your insight and perspective uh, and, and what it's like to be an orthopedic surgeon in, in a place like Hayes, Kansas and learn a little bit about your journey. Dr. Huff, uh, you and I have known each other for a few years, but um, I always uh, love the opportunity to, to chat and, and I always learn something uh, from you uh, through our interactions. And you, you, you're an amazing member of the Movement is Life Steering Committee, uh, your contributions, your work on Operation Change. Um, it's just, you know, thank you uh, for what you're doing uh, and for both of you. Uh, on, my, on my computer here, I have uh, the Latin phrase, anxietas de agres, which translated means worry about the patient. And, and although neither of you uh, perhaps said that, what came through in your comments today is that everything you're doing is because you share that perspective, you worry about the patient. And I wanna commend you both uh, for that and for the work that you're doing. Thank yes. you so much, Bill, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. It was nice uh, for you to have us. I enjoyed the experience. Thank you. Thank you again. Uh, this is uh, Bill Finnerfrock uh, with Moving His Life. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.